Good morning again. Good morning. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 8. I know that some of us here have had to deal with cataracts. I've been told that if I live long enough, I myself will probably have to deal with cataracts someday. If you don't know, cataracts makes the lens of your eye go cloudy and obscures your vision. As the cloudiness increases, vision becomes more and more blurry. I've heard that it's especially bad for nighttime driving. Cataracts create a problem for seeing things clearly. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see multiple issues related to vision and the ability to see. We're going to see Jesus heal a man who is physically blind. We're going to see some who are spiritually completely blind. And we're going to see some who have blurry vision when it comes to seeing Jesus. We're going to see that the disciples, although they see Jesus, they've got something like spiritual cataracts. And they don't see Jesus clearly yet. We would be wise to listen to the words of Jesus along with them in our passage today. So let's read our passage. We're going to start in Mark chapter 8 and verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing one with another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us eyes to see. And we admit that we do not see you as you are. And that this side of glory, there will always be some aspect, as your word says, that we're looking through a glass dimly. Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us more and more, Lord. For the sight that we have this morning, we pray that you would give us clearer vision of yourself. Help us to see you, Lord, and be transformed by you in that. We love you. 
Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In his gospel account, Mark has continued to put Jesus before us. He's invited us to accept Jesus and trust in him. He's put before us the power of Jesus, his authority. We've seen again and again the compassion of Jesus. We have seen the deity of Jesus, among many other things. And as we focus in on these passages today, we're invited to know Jesus truly. Invited to know Jesus truly in two ways that we can see that as we work through this passage is the call to reject hypocrisy and then to see Jesus clearly. Covering a few different passages here, um, but I think there's a theme that ties them all together. First, we want to look at the call to reject hypocrisy in verses 11. That's going to bring us in down into verse 20, and we'll have some overlapping parts here. Uh, again, here we see the Pharisees are coming after Jesus. It's not the first or the second time in Mark's gospel. Uh, here, Jesus seems to be on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, exactly where Dalmanutha is, we don't know. It's kind of lost to history. Uh, but it seems to be in the area of the Decapolis. Again, those are those ten cities. They're a lot of Gentiles there, some Jews there, probably on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, east side of the Jordan River. Oh, well, the Pharisees, they come and they find Jesus and they begin to argue with him. They test Jesus and seek a sign from heaven from him. They're challenging Jesus to do a miracle right there in front of them if he's going to prove to them that he's authentically from God. We've already seen in Mark's gospel, they charge him with doing his miracles by the power of the devil. And here they're before him saying, okay, you do something to prove to us that you're from God. In response, Jesus first sighs deeply in his spirit. Perhaps Jesus is taxed by their consistent and persistent disbelief. Second, Jesus denies their demands. He asks, why does this generation seek a sign? Then says to them that they're not going to get one. He then gets into the boat and he crosses the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. Now that might at first seem harsh. You know, here's people asking Jesus to prove himself to them and he refuses. But it's really not harsh. In fact, I think it's actually wise. Uh, in the face of the Pharisees' skepticism and disbelief, Jesus doesn't cater to their demands. He doesn't dance for them. Jesus knew better than to fall for the trick that if he simply showed a sign that they would believe. You know, that's really not how the human heart works. Uh, the Bible belabors this point in the Old Testament. I mean, think about it. Who saw more signs in the heavens and on earth than the first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt? I mean, who saw more signs than them? They saw the ten plagues of Egypt on Egypt. They got to walk through the Red Sea, with walls of water on each side. They witnessed all that happened. There was a pillar of fire by night. By day, there was a cloud over their heads. That seemed to go on day by day. They had food from heaven every single day, except on Saturdays when God said he wasn't going to send it. They had water from a rock where you don't get water. Over and over and over again. And there were many more miracles that they got to see. They witnessed all these signs from God. And yet, Exodus 32, 
they worship a golden calf. They're at the mountain of God. They worship a golden calf. They pull up to the southern border of the promised land, and they rebel. They turn away in fear. They refuse to listen to God. After 40 years of wandering, they turn up on the eastern side of the promised land, on the eastern doorstep, and they engage in idolatry with the Baal of Peor. This people saw so much, so many signs, and they rejected it all. Some believed, the majority didn't. They disbelieved God in spite of the innumerable miracles that they saw every day. Now perhaps you've heard people say that if God proved himself to them, then they'd believe. I've heard that. Don't buy it. Don't lose sleep wondering why God doesn't just do a miracle in the sky to prove his existence to skeptics. He's been there. He's done that. He has demonstrated the condition of the human heart to us in the Old Testament. Jeremiah says that the human heart is desperately wicked. The the whole Bible illustrates that point in black and white terms. And when you watch the news, you get to see that colored out in vivid uh, colors. The heart that does not love God will find any reason to reject God until there's no reason, and then that's reason enough. It shouldn't upset our faith when people reject the gospel, even when we share it clearly and winsomely. You know, most times, it's not because you didn't share it well enough. It's often the nature of the soil on which the seed dropped. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, cast that seed anyway. Neil was telling us last week it was gospel week at work, (laughs) and uh, interested to hear how that went. We want to continue, even if people reject the gospel. I mean, Jesus was standing face to face with people and they rejected him. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised if that happens, but that shouldn't deter us from doing it anyways. But here, Jesus, seeing the condition of their hardened heart, he gives them no sign. He's not going to dance for them. He gets in the boat and he leaves. And as he's in the boat with his disciples, he warns them about the people that he was just arguing with. I want to read verse 15 again here. It says, And he cautioned them, that's his disciples, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Again, I think here this is something like a a short, pithy parable. It's a parable that packs a punch. And as we're going to see, this Soars about 10,000 feet over the disciples' heads. They completely miss it. Uh, now, Mark's gospel doesn't define what this leaven is. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? Mark doesn't define that for us. And Matthew's parallel account, this is Matthew 16:12, uh, he calls it the teaching of the Pharisees. In a close parallel, in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Luke defines it through the disciples there as the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So we see Matthew draws out it's the, the teaching of the Pharisees, Luke that it's the, uh, their hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisees here. Uh, and those aren't conflicting definitions. In fact, as we think back to Mark chapter 7 where we just were, uh, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes, and when he does that, he calls out their hypocrisy, calls them hypocrites, because they worship God with their lips but not with their hearts. And then calls them hypocrites for elevating their traditions over the clear word of God. So right there, he rebukes their hypocrisy and their teaching. And then here, he says, beware of their leaven. So I think that makes sense of it. Uh, 
right in the face of, of what they've done here. And as well, he mentions Herod. Uh, the thing that Herod had in common with the Pharisees is they didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, and, and here the Pharisees have proven it by demanding that Jesus would show them a sign when they weren't going to believe anyways. Jesus doesn't want his disciples or us to let this kind of leaven infiltrate and permeate our hearts. He doesn't want that for us. Now, we might ask, is this a danger for us? Is this even a danger for us? You know, I don't think any of us are afraid that we're going to become like Herod in our heart towards Jesus, or that we're going to become like the Pharisees in our thoughts and attitudes. We would think that that's the last possible thing that could happen to us. But if we think that way, then we have to ask the question, is Jesus misguided in saying this? I don't think so. We wouldn't want to say that either. Uh, we wouldn't want to say that he's just throwing something out there with no, uh, nothing that it's connecting with. I think a question for us is, how do we take the warning of Jesus serious? If we see that Jesus gives a warning to them, gives a warning to us, how do we take it serious? I think there's a couple questions we could ask ourselves to help us grapple with Jesus' warning and uh, keep the leaven of the Pharisees out. And one question would be, how are we prone to hypocrisy? We ask ourselves that. How are we prone to hypocrisy? You know, it's so tempting to want to look better on the outside than we are on the inside. We want to look holy and nice and put together and strong in the faith and all sorts of other really good things. But I think that we all know that spiritually speaking, we're a, a few bricks short of a load. You know, we're a few sandwiches short of a picnic. It's not that we're dumb, as those sayings might suggest, uh, but we don't, we don't measure up. We know that we don't measure up even to our own standards, much less God's standards. But we do desire to look like we do. Uh, and that's where the danger of hypocrisy lies. We pretend to be what we're not. And the better we get at it, the better we get at it. Now, let me be clear. It's okay to not be okay. But it's important that we share that with people that we can trust will point us to God. The words of Jesus here regarding this leaven are not idle. They're not misplaced. They may be closer to home than we would want to admit. So we continue to look at Mark's gospel. We might even see some ironic hypocrisy on the part of the disciples. By God's grace, we might even see it in our own lives and turn from it. Here's another question we can ask to help us take Jesus' warning seriously. How are we prone to disbelieving God? Herod and the Pharisees, they did not believe Jesus. They did not believe God. How are we prone to that? Another way to ask this is this. What lies of Satan do we give credibility to, do we give space to in our hearts and minds? You know, if the emotions and thoughts that pervade your mind contradict the clear teaching of Scripture, then you had better contradict those emotions. The Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones argued that Christians need to stop listening to themselves so much and start preaching to themselves. Life in this world is very hard, and we shouldn't hide from that reality, but we don't want to let the hardness of this life harden our hearts to God. One way to keep the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod out is to see our faith as a precious thing and honestly fight the good fight of faith in our hearts. You may need to let a brother or sister into your life to help you in this fight. 
don't let Satan snack on your faith. 1 Peter 5.8 says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yes, we may all wrestle with doubts. Just make sure you wrestle with them. Don't assume that every thought that enters your mind is right or that it's from God. Guard your faith with the truth of God's word. So in this first section of scripture we've been looking at, see here the call to reject hypocrisy, to reject this leaven in our lives. Uh, the next thing we see here should be the, clear, the call to see Jesus clearly. Now if you didn't know better, um, we might expect the disciples to hear this warning from Jesus, uh, to take note, and to nod their heads knowingly. You know, message received. You would think they'd get it. Uh, but we do know better because Mark tips us off. Even before this warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod in verse 15, verse 14 tells us that they get into the boat, they only got one loaf, uh, and that's because they've forgotten to get any more bread. Now what happened to the seven baskets we were just reading about? Uh, you know, maybe they shared that bread or gave it away. Maybe they ate it already. Mark doesn't tell us, but he does tell us that they've got just one loaf. And when Jesus warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees, they start getting self-conscious about their one loaf of bread. They start getting nervous, and they start talking to each other in whispered tones about their bread problem. Uh, maybe they begin to argue and say, well, Peter, you, why didn't you bring more bread? That's the last time I'm putting you in charge of it. Uh, they're, they're, they're talking together, and Jesus knows what they're talking about. And uh, he, he gets at them. I mean, honestly, uh, really, we see quite the rebuke. In, in verse 17 and following, Jesus says, says, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? I mean, listen to these words. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? And he reminds them of the miracles that he did. And at the end, he says again, Do you not? yet understand. Those must have been painful words to hear from the lips of Jesus. You know, their problem was not that they forgot bread. Their problem is that they forgot who Jesus was. I mean, in fact, they forgot what just happened. Not only did they miss the point of the parable, but they don't even have the confidence that Jesus could do again what he had already done two times before. You know, it's bad enough that Jesus' opponents are assiduously challenging him everywhere he goes, but his own disciples aren't even getting it. You know, Jesus is so patient. I think if you threw any one of us in the situation that Jesus was in, you would see sin coming out of us. But not our Lord. He is so patient with them. Now, he does rebuke them, but that rebuke is in love. He doesn't want them to continue in the, their state of misperception. You know, they do believe, and they do see Jesus, but they're not quite getting it yet. They will in time, but not yet. They see Jesus, but not clearly. And it's in this context here that we get our next story. They land their boat on the shore in Bethsaida, and there they find a blind man. He's been brought to Jesus by some friends who beg Jesus to heal him. They beg Jesus to touch him. And so Jesus leads this man 
by the hand out of the village. I mean, could you imagine being blind and having Jesus lead you by the hand? That would be incredible. You know, by his Holy Spirit, he still leads us by the hand today when we ask him. What happens next in this account strikes us with all sorts of strange. First here, it says that Jesus spits on his eyes. Spits in his eyes. It's not what we were expecting. Uh, But once again, uh, Jesus is touching the affected areas like we saw last week. Or in a previous passage here. Uh, Next, he asks if the man sees anything. Uh, And and this is even more striking. Uh, He's not fully healed yet. Uh, He's been partially healed, but he doesn't see clearly. He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus lays his hand on him again and heals him completely. Then the man sees everything. Jesus sends him directly home, says, Do not even enter the village. And that's that. So what's exactly going on here? Uh, Jesus heals this man in two stages. You know, is this uh, a misfire? Uh, was he unable to do this all at once? Well, of course we know that's not the case. We know Jesus well enough to know that anything he does is deliberate. Uh, it's not that Jesus is running out of power that day. Sometimes the things that Jesus does strike us as strange, but they're never on accident. They are never a failure on Jesus' part, and God is never embarrassed about the way he works. So what is going on here? Well, I believe in this healing that Jesus performs, I think he's acting out a parable for the disciples to see. I think he's illustrating for his disciples the condition of their hearts. He's illustrating the condition of their eyes and the eyes of their hearts. When this man uh, is half healed, he sees but not clearly. He's got blurry vision. He sees people, but they remind him of trees. And that's pretty much how the disciples see Jesus at this point. They do see him. They do receive him. They do believe in him. And yet they don't. In another sense, uh, just not as clearly as they should. Now, they don't have the hostility of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are completely blind. They have Jesus standing right before them, and they don't see anything. They're completely blind. That's not where the disciples are at. They do see Jesus, yet they don't totally get him yet. And I think there's some culpability in their misunderstanding. Otherwise, they don't know why Jesus would rebuke them at this point. This half-sightedness I think is illustrated in the way Jesus heals this blind man, and that's why it's happening in two stages here. Jesus both shows compassion on this blind man and mercifully shows his disciples a picture of where they're at and where they will be one day when he helps them see completely who he is. So what should we take from all of this? I think it's tempting to just laugh at the disciples and say, can't you guys get it together? Uh, But don't forget that the only way we know about the story is because these same disciples had the humility to write about the less than flattering parts of their life with Jesus and their walk with him. So we should take heed. You know, Peter is likely the one who was at Mark's elbow here as as he's writing this gospel, and so we see some of that terse tone come out. Uh, Peter knew the sting of Jesus' rebuke, and we're going to see it here in the next passage as well. And so I think that's why there is a, a strong tone here. But we want to we listen to this. 
we want to be honest with ourselves and see that we can have problems with our spiritual sight as well. We've got spiritual cataracts that Jesus needs to deal with. Although we do see Jesus, you know, it's very easy to conform Jesus to how we would like him to be. Uh, every generation wants to make a Jesus that fits what they would like him to be. We're all tempted to that. We're all tempted to have a, a skewed vision of who Jesus actually is. Sometimes, although we accept Jesus, our lives don't always demonstrate that fact. Sometimes hypocrisy is found even in us. So how do we invite the Lord to help us? How do we beg him to heal us like we see in this passage? I think simply and first of all, we, we ask. We actually beg. Uh, we humble ourselves and go to him in prayer and plead with him to reveal more of himself to us. We ask that he would help us to understand him rightly and to see him in his glory. Next, we dive into his word. It is this book and in this book that we see Jesus and where uh, our eyes get cleared up so we can see him better. If our view of Jesus is skewed, we can turn here and have it corrected. It's here that we can get a fresh glimpse of him as the Holy Spirit works to help us see Jesus. And we seek to know Jesus together. We have the opportunity here in our fellowship to picture Christ one to another. Uh, we have the opportunity to see him in the lives of other people as they are following Jesus and as they are reflecting him. Colossians talks about us growing up together into maturity to the full stature of Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we continued to grow and could see Jesus in the lives one of another again and again? That's the beauty of God's wisdom in the church. We get to be here together and encourage one another and picture Christ to each other. If you feel like you've got spiritual cataracts, go to Jesus. He will help you. Next week, we're going to enter into one of the most important passages in Mark's gospel. It's one of the high points. And we're going to see once again this sight, this perception that the disciples have, and how they don't get it. This will continue on next week. Well, if Elizabeth would come to play and the men would prepare for communion, we'll go to prayer together.